Have you ever felt like giving up, quitting, throwing in the towel? Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. She's an author, health coach, and motivational speaker. Backed into a corner multiple times in her life, Carol shares with you stories on how she overcame some of the toughest obstacles a person can go through in life, but refused to give up hope. Rather than admit defeat, an opportunity was presented, and it involves each and every one of you. Carol will feature spectacular guests who will share their messages of hope, encouragement, and their inspiration to prove why life's adversities only make you stronger. And now, welcoming the host of the show, here's Carol Graham. Thank you, JJ, for that introduction. With me today is Nigel Vardy. He is a mountaineer, an author of more than one book, and a speaker who has had his share of close calls in the hills. Now, we, he has lost fingers, toes, and a nose to frostbite. This in itself is beyond, way beyond my imagination, and I can't wait to hear what he has to tell us about that. And what motivates him to keep doing this? He, his two book, books are entitled Once Bitten and Seven Peaks, Seven Islands. He's done numerous press articles, and he shares his experiences across the UK and Europe. Welcome, Nigel. Good evening, or good day, or good, just good. Good, good is good. You got it. We love good. Good is good. All right, so let's start with whatever motivated you to start doing this. Was it a hobby? Was it a career? And what was your motivation? Well, I grew up in the outdoors and I've got a national park very close to me. So I spent a lot of time in there as a child. Hill walking. We haven't got any real mountains in my part of the world, but just time outdoors hill walking. And that was great. That was growing up. And when I got into engineering, which uh, has been a profession of mine for years, I met some guys uh, in the industry who said, look, we're going mountaineering in Scotland. What do you think? How do you fancy a go? And I just went with some friends and we learned how to use ice axes and crampons. And I all thought uh, this is all very exciting and very different. And I never looked back from that point. Really? No. How many years ago? Oh, dear. More than I can count with what's left of my hands. Um, (laughs) I should say 25 years ago. And you have been doing this regularly for 25 years? Uh, Just with one little break. But that was because somebody cut my toes off and told me not to walk for a while. Um, But otherwise, yeah, it's been pretty continuous. Okay, you've got our interest now. Let's fast forward to losing your fingers, toes and nose. Well, I'd been climbing in South America and doing other projects and just by complete chance, I went to a dinner party and two guys, I knew one very well, one not so well, just said, we're about going to climb Mount McKinley or Denali in Alaska next year. How are you fixed? And I said one of the most dangerous words in the English language, which was, yes, I'll come. <laughs> that was it. And, and we trained for a year, went out to, to Alaska 
uh, went for the climb. Uh, no guides, no porters, you know, just just three three guys, three really? very small dots on the mountain. And had, as I've always said, the best 17 days climbing of my life, followed by the worst. And the weather changed. The weather got us. It's, it's known for it up there. So the best part was the completion of it and the worst part was what happened to you physically is that what you're saying or well we never actually made it to the top we were 300 feet short oh my goodness out of over 20,000 oh my goodness but that's life no kidding I always I always think if we'd have made the 300 feet I wouldn't be here now because because the weather would have just killed us the wind would have blown us off so we're 300 feet short. We ended up spending the night in what they think is about minus 60 centigrade uh, with no tent, no sleeping bags, oh. just in the gear, the gear we're standing in. And so, you know, nature has its uh, has its effect. And we froze overnight very badly, tried to get out the next day. Terrific struggle to try and get home, uh, which actually ended up with the highest helicopter rescue in North American history at the time, saving our lives. Did you say the highest helicopter rescue? Certainly, yes. Oh my goodness! What was the um, what was the uh, the height? Over nineteen and a half thousand feet. Wow. Are you still climbing? Yes, yes. I was in the Himalayas late last year, uh, climbing a seven thousand meter peak when. There were huge avalanches in the country and I was reported missing. Um, I don't know if you're getting a theme here yet. Um, (laughs) Everywhere I seem to go seems to end in disaster. So we tried actually climbing. I'd never been that high. Big five week trip. And strangely enough, I turned back on the summit day because a really big lesson was taught to me on McKinley, which was don't push too far. Mm. And I could feel frostbite trying to take my right foot again. Really? And I just knew, Nigel this is not your day, go home. And that's exactly what I did. Did that depress you? For a few moments at the time, yes. There was a lot of tears, a lot of nervous energy, but I knew it was the right decision. And and that's a really tough call because you have spent so much time, effort, money, friendship, whatever, getting this far to say that's it. And you've given it everything, but you know that's it. And I just had to do that. And it was heartbreaking. When I got back down to camp, still heartbreaking because the my foot was actually bright red. If you've ever seen really cold flesh, that's what happens to it. Wow. I didn't know if I'd done anything to it. It was all very tense for about two to three hours. And then my foot started to warm. And then I readied myself to help my friends who were still up there when they came down. So I got as much camp prepared to help them I do that that's my natural thing but also it's a distraction Hmm. but when they came in you know all my attention was with them because they'd had a really tough climb hallucinating and really cold they got back down safe um but after that no regrets whatsoever because I knew I'd made the right call that's wonderful now have you ever lost a friend in this not while I've been on a trip, but I've had friends lost out on the mountain, yes, but on when they've been in other places. Like not with you, you mean? Not with me at all, no, okay. no, no. The closest was McKinley when one of the guys only just got back. Now, does that de- did that deter you at all or or no? 
did you? I'd say, I'd say it made me worse. <laughs> a lot worse. Because you just want to want to succeed. Well, I think you learn a lot of lessons at this point. You know, nature has kicked the backside out of you. And you are at the mercy of medical attention and, and all the rest of it. And suddenly you've gone from being a really fit and active individual to somebody who's told to lie in bed for a minimum of three months and do nothing. And that feels very wrong to people like me. Mm. You go through depression. Believe me, I've been in some horrible places mentally and physically. And it's the strength of your family and friends that turn you. And, and what I managed to do was to channel all that depressive energy into absolute drive. To such a degree, I warned people not to try and stop me. Because I was on fire and I was going to learn to walk and learn to climb again. And I didn't care how much it hurt. I knew it would be a long journey. Don't get me wrong. I mean, it was nearly two years. But I was absolutely on fire and I still am to this day. And what do you think is that motivating factor? What what is the drive? I think some of it, it it's you sort of people call it about going into a tar pit. You go into a really dark, sticky, horrible, nasty area where you can't seem to get out. And then I gave myself a really stiff talking to one evening out loud in the room of Nigel, will you stop feeling sorry for yourself? Will you stop making people's lives hard? You can't change the situation you're in. And I think that's a big thing. You have to become an absolute realist. All the lovely words in the world will not get you better any faster. All the you know, well, you know, don't don't worry. It, 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 the fluffiness doesn't work. What works is straight talking. And I thank the staff at the hospital for that. They gave me some straight talking. I gave myself some straight talking. And the next morning I woke up with a right. You tell me I'm going to walk. I'm going to do it. You tell me I'm going to ride a bike. I'm going to do it. And I'll go speaking and I'll go into industry. And nobody is going to say no to me. And how did your family respond? Well, it frightened the backside out of my mother, and it still does to this day. Mm. Because um, there's only me and my sister. Okay. And it was sort of, but you can't do those things again. And, and it's nearly killed you once. And, well, yes, it has. But wouldn't it kill me again if I sat down and did nothing about it? And would I live a life always regretting I should have done things? So I've had to sort of, you know... To this day, I still do trips and my mum still worries about them, you know, um, and, and it's 16 years after the accident. Um, the rest of my family and my friends have been really supportive and just said, look, you know, if you're happy to do it, go and do it. And I think what's helped them is I've had more than one occasion where I have said, now's the time to turn around. And I think that shows people that we all take risks, don't get me wrong. But you have to learn when to say no. So that is a lesson that you have learned. A massive lesson I have learned, yes. Do you apply that to any other area of your life? Like has it strengthened you in making other kinds of decisions? It has because it's given me a very level head. You know, I've been in climbing situations with friends who they're really, really scared, but they're perfectly safe and I've remained really calm. Mm. I've worked in engineering for many years. What kind of engineering, Nigel? 
electrical. Okay. The mains engineering, so power to, between cities and towns. Okay. And I find the worse the evening, the more foul the weather, the deeper the snow, the deeper the floods, the calmer I get. Wow. I don't do monotony. What I do is the world's <laughs> falling down around you and I just go, just leave me with it and it'll just happen. Don't get in my way. Don't bother me. Just give me the job. You're a force to be reckoned with, aren't you? When I've got a head on, I really am. Yes, <laughs> I really am. Is that in your nature or is that, or did you develop that tenacity? I think I developed it. When I was very young, I was incredibly shy. And to a degree, actually, I still am. I, I don't work with large audience. I work with audience as well, but I don't do big groups of people in a room doing social chatting. Um, I'm, I'm better with a small group of people. Um, so it's something I developed. And then as I learned that, you know, you can stand up again after you've been bashed down and you suddenly learn as well what's important. And I see it in my everyday life, you know, oh, there's a queue at the supermarket. I can't cope. Well, why? It's only a queue of people. It's not the end of the world. And, you know, my phone doesn't work or the cars broke down. And what you have to do is to put things into context. You know, yes. I lost my fingers. I actually sat one morning and wished my fingers goodbye as I sat in a bath. How many did you lose? All of them. Oh, my goodness. But they took them off one hand at a time. And I actually said I insisted I was brought up where cleanliness was next to godliness so I insisted before I went into theatre, I wanted a bath because I knew after theatre, I'd be covered in all kinds of goo. And I sat there in tears, wishing my fingers goodbye. Wow. Now, until you've been to that moment. Yes. Your mobile phone breaking is a waste of time. Exactly. Your five minutes late is a waste of time. But trying to get people to understand that's very difficult. Yes, it is, because it's relative, isn't it? Isn't it just? They can't they can't relate. So therefore, their problem is the same as yours. It's all relative Isn't and it's, it? it's huge. And yet it's it's nothing. So what have you been? How have you been able through what you have learned to help those around you other than being the calming force as you as you described? Is there anything else that you have done? People, you know, watching you and your tenacity, your strength, your a confidence um is there any way that you've been able to help anybody you know come out of their shells so to speak i've certainly helped a lot of friends and their children get start climbing you see i'm also completely scared of heights <laughs> okay. so and really i am you expect I am. me to believe that right <laughs> oh i really am scared of heights yeah absolutely petrified <laughs> it's a head game it's the age-old thing of a head game i know it's safe I am bolted onto this wall. I can't fall. But you tell my right foot to move. Oh, my goodness. So you have to you have to work that up. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But I've, recently I took some friends' children's climbing because they just we can't do it. We can't do it. You know what it's like when you're young. You can't yes. do it. You throw it all down. You walk away. And then I go and, and I don't have to say much because usually the parents have wound them up of this guy's going to take you climbing. He's got no fingers and no toes. <laughs> And it doesn't take long for them to just enjoy what they're doing. I don't labour on the issue. I don't go on about it. They'll ask me very happily talk about it and they have a great time. But I also when I've worked in engineering, I, I still work with a lot of people who type with two fingers. And it's like they're hitting the keyboard with two hammers. 
And I can type with, well, I've got stumps and I can type sort of six fingered typing with my stumps. And I have people saying, but how can you type faster than me? I've got hands. It's all down to how you apply yourself. People see me as a calming figure in, in difficult situations. So they know they can trust me to do things that builds trust with people. Yes, yes. And I go into everything from uh, junior schools, eight, nine, ten year olds to people at senior age and people find a great motivation and a great enthusement and excitement when I speak because it gives them they may not have had frostbite but they've had a heart attack or they've had a friend who's not been well or just to see the light in children's eyes that they've not read something from a book here's a person that's been there and I've had wonderful things off children, letters, pictures. Aww. They're just so Aww. excited. And that's how I get around my mum. Because if my mum's really worried yes. about me climbing, I show her loads of pictures that eight-year-olds have drawn about me. She thinks it's lovely. <laughs> my goodness. Um, there was a question in there. And now I, I'm, I'm so blown away that I forgot what it was. Um, I guess... What when you speak to these groups, whether they be children or old people, and you're sharing your story, but do you have anything in particular like uh, secrets or, or um, you know, some motivating factors specifically for the groups that you are speaking to that to this audience as well? It does depend on the audience or their age group. When I, when I talk to particularly youngsters and also sort of teenage years when they're going through their senior education and such, we've all done it. We've all been 15 and gone, I can't cope or this is no good or nobody likes me. or And what I find when I relate the story to them, I'm very, very blunt with what I say. And I will put pictures of frostbite injuries, all mine, on the screen. Mm. And I've had lots of youngsters with, oh, I can't cope. But nobody likes me because I don't look nice. Hey, okay, here's, okay. here's a guy with a frostbitten black nose. His left cheek is hanging off. And he's sat in a room thinking, nobody will ever want to love me ever again. Mm. And sometimes they relate to the fact that, well, actually, it's not that bad. I've had some with... You know, I can't do sport because I can't run fast enough or I can't go. You know, I can't run at all now. I've not got toes. I can do most of the things, but I can't run. But if they can see that I can mountaineer and they can see I bash through jungles and I get on with things. And that's the biggest issue, I think. Whatever happens, you've just got to keep going. It's not giving up. It's not giving up. We all have bad days. Believe me, I have them. We all have them. But you've just got to pick yourself up next morning and do it again and do it again and keep doing it. Until you succeed. Yeah. Yeah. Now, every time that you have, which brings me to a, another point as far as succeeding, um, do you always want to do something bigger or are you happy with doing something similar like You've you've done the peaks. What it, what is your next goal? Is it greater or is it something that you just haven't accomplished or or what? Do you know sometimes I don't know myself and things happen. It was a bit like uh, I came back from uh, McKinley, so my biggest thing was to walk again and to live as normal a life as possible. That's fine. 
I then said, well, I want to climb as high again as McKinley or I'd like to learn to ski again. So I t- I've learned to ski again. And last year I took part in a skiing expedition on Greenland. Oh, my goodness. No, with no toes, I'm, with no toes. Oh, yeah. And I ski telemark. And if you know what that is, no. you basically um, when you ski, when you turn, you kneel down, your boots flex and your heels come up. Some people call it free healing. And I was flatly told that's impossible to do without toes. Never, ever, ever tell me something's impossible because, <laughs> you know, I'll do it or I'll have it. Give it I'll give it a damn good go. Now. Last year, Himlung in the Himalayas, I wanted a crack at a 7000 meter peak and it didn't work for me. Well, that's OK. What I'll say then is fine. I don't want to go any higher, but I'll do different things, perhaps lower peaks, but a bit more remote or interesting or unusual. I've done lots of relief work, so I might do some more of that or pass my skills and experience on to other people doing peaks that to me are not difficult but to them are a huge challenge mm. and, and only coming up in a few days time i'm taking some people out into the local peak district near me who never go hill walking and i'm going to take them out for six or seven miles it, for me it's a normal day out <laughs> to them it'll be a huge day and to see how they react and how they work with that and they also want to talk to me on the trip about my story and what I do. So rather than standing in front of a formal audience, we do it while we're walking in the hills. And it just excites them and revs them up. And I just have a lovely time. I just enjoy doing things like that because isn't life all about enjoying things? That's right. And helping others along the way, which is exactly what you're doing. Yeah. Now, when you are lacking oxygen and you're in... You know, I don't know how long you're how long do the treks usually take when you when you climb that high? Oh, um, it can be. I mean, the last the big one in Himalung was five weeks. OK, so how does how do you change or do you change mentally as you and emotionally as the you know, the oxygen levels are getting lower? And, um, you know, how do you deal with that? You mentioned that one of your friends was hallucinating, and that's what triggered this question. Like, how do you handle the the uh, the mental part of it? Well, I think he had trouble. At one point, he thought he was sitting in a car being driven by a large white rabbit. Wow. Uh, that's as bad as he got. Now, I've never been that bad. I've, I've, I've been starved of oxygen. And what you tend to do is you learn not to rush. Mm. If you're trekking... You know, the classic things that people like to do, Everest Base Camp, Kilimanjaro, Inca Trail. And it's a great lesson, this. When people say you've got eight hours to get there, why don't you take eight hours? Mm, Good point. And and be steady. Breathe well. A lot of us count when we breathe or we might breathe every second pace or third pace. And the higher you get, then it'll be when your left foot goes forward. Then it'll be with your left foot and then with your right foot. And you so and you count things. And I find that gives me a great focus. But what I find is enjoy the day. Why rush there in two hours, feel terrible, be sick and go, I hate this. When you could take eight hours, see some beautiful countryside, meet some wonderful people and have a thoroughly good time. We are possessed with rushing. Yes. You know, I drive a 1970s VW Combi camper. 
your bay window camper. Mm-hmm. You can't go faster than 50. <laughs> so everybody waves at you as they go flying by and I just go, hello. Oh. It's just great. Oh, that's funny. Enjoy the journey. <laughs> I enjoy the journey. That's a title for your next book. <laughs> Well, I've been writing again, actually, but that's another story. Okay, so let's get into your books. One Spitten. Tell us about yeah. it. Well, I've been a compulsive diary writer for over 35 years. I've never missed a day. Uh, well, that's not strictly true. I missed about two weeks when I had my fingers first frozen and we okay. recorded it onto cassette. I insisted the staff bought me cassettes in so I could record my own voice. Hmm. And I go back and listen to those once in a while, and believe me, they are a huge leveller. Oh, I bet. Because I sound, you can probably appreciate, pretty grim. Mm. Um, and when I started um, getting things together, and I still wanted to write my diaries, and people said, well, Nigel, can't you do something with these? And I thought about writing a book, and some people said, use your diaries, some people didn't. I got some professional help. And I just wanted to write. And it was for some huge reasons. Firstly, everybody said it's a good story to tell. So I wrote it. But also importantly, it was incredibly cathartic for me to actually write down what had happened and how I felt about it. The press reported it very badly and quite sensationally. Mm. And... I thought I need to put the record straight in my words. You know, people can believe it or not, but they're my words. And so I wrote about the story and that was two thirds of the book. And I found that an incredibly cathartic experience. The last third was about some of the lessons I'd learned and how they related to me and how they could help you. Wow, that's wonderful. So that was once bitten. Yes. And, you know, lots of tears, lots of joy, lots of great fun. Lots of having to talk to people. And when I say that, I was so personal about my life. I wanted permission to say things because other people were involved. Mm. That's vitally important. When I came out and obviously I went and and did bits of climbing and walking and, and I still to this day have to manage my skin grafts very, very carefully. This Seven Peaks, Seven Islands challenge appeared because I was in Baffin Island in a blizzard with a Guatemalan, as you do. And this guy started talking about it, a guy called Jaime Vinos, who's a famous mountaineer in Guatemala. And and we just started talking about this thing. And it was just one of these places where you go, do you know, I think I could do that. I know I'm not going to climb K2 or Everest. And I just know these things. Uh-huh. But what I could say is, but do you know what? I can do that. And that's a challenge that's good for me. And when I came home to the UK... I talked to some of the climate institutions and people and they all said, well, nobody from Britain's never done it because nobody's really bothered and nobody really cares. There's too many challenges out there. And I thought, fine, I'm doing it for me anyway. I'm not doing it for you. And so I went and did it. And it was everything from ski mountaineering, literally to jungle bashing, to climbing volcanoes, to going up huge cliffs across the world. Jungle bashing. Yeah, going through the jungle with a machete. Great fun. Where? Uh, Sumatra, Borneo, Madagascar. They were the three for that. I climbed two volcanoes, one in Sumatra, one in Japan. Two ice peaks, one on Baffin Island, one on Greenland. A huge rock peak on New Guinea. So it's a massive, it's not just I'm a mountaineer and I climb with crampons on. This was everything. 
And a lot of people said, great, wonderful, Nigel. It's not going to make great headlines. Well, that doesn't matter because I didn't do it for the headlines. That's I did it right. for me. That's right. And I wrote the book about that from my perspective and how and it cost me dearly as well, not just in money. You know, I lost a relationship through it. Um, lots of personal things uh, that you've got to learn where the line is. I was still learning at times where that line was. And when I came back, I mean, the, the, the strangest thing was when I climbed the last peak, I went quite depressed for a while because I was looking for a challenge mm. and my challenge was done. I'd taken five years to do it. Mm. And I was looking for that next challenge. And, and that taught me a huge lesson of life isn't just about what do I do next? How do I impress people? Because that's not what we're here to do. Mm-hmm. Well, some people think that. I can see that. Sure. So I was looking at. I actually need to take some time out and, and relate to things and look at things. I wrote the second book and I got all intentions of writing a third and other things. And I, I just got them. I don't want to call it writer's block or whatever, but it just felt wrong. And I can't write if it feels wrong. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so I sort of shelved lots of things and did lots of different other projects. I did some relief work in Ethiopia um, I've done some walking in South Africa, still done some mountaineering. I ski regularly, you know, I climb regularly. And I just wanted and, and, and last year I almost burned myself out doing it. I did so much last year. By the end of the year, I was a physical wreck. Wow. And I had to sit down. I wrote a very emotional blog about it. I had to sit down and give myself another good talking to. And then did- this year, obviously, we're, we're doing different things. So what's your next challenge? Well, I'm hoping to lead a trip in Morocco and take some people into the Atlas Mountains. So height wise, it's not a huge challenge for me, but it's an area I've not been before. But it's for them. It's a huge challenge for them because I want to help those people do something exciting or go somewhere different or experience you know the thin air of altitude or the cold or i mean i don't want to put people in discomfort don't get me wrong but it's a heck of a place to learn very quickly do a lot of the people that you take um are they first timers they've never done it before or are they experienced it's it's a real mixed bag Hmm. you can have five people on a trip two have never been out the country in their life two have done something like this one doesn't really know what's going on. You just get such a mixed bag. I mean, it really is. Have you had people turn back? Yeah, yeah. I've had a friend collapse before with altitude and have to be carried off. Thankfully, she was fine. Uh, I've had some people that mentally just say, I feel fine, but mentally I can't. I'm not happy with this. I need to go down. Other people, you almost have to tell them because they'll be crawling on their hands and knees. Um, you know, again, a, a real mixed bag. And that's what makes it, as I said earlier, you know, when the chips are down, when the blizzards are hitting, that's when I shine. And that's when you keep calm in the midst of the storm. Yeah. Now, yeah. when these people leave the group, do they go back by themselves? Like, No, I would never have that. I would never have that. So how, uh, what do you do? Do you go back and then come back again or – if you've got local in-country people with you, porters or climbers from the local country, you know, we'd put them with them and they oh, go okay, back with okay. them. Say, you know, you would never leave people on their own. That, that's unprofessional. And um, obviously, if they get airlifted out because they've got a major problem, right. a, me- a medical issue, it may be that we, we work with a lot of in-country agencies. 
So it may be, as, as two friends of mine were airlifted from the Himalayas in a helicopter, they had to go to hospital in Kathmandu, but they were met at the other end by other people of the agency to help them and get them to hospital. And as it happened, it was nothing serious, but at altitude you don't recover. So if yeah. you get, say, a nasty cut or an infection, it doesn't recover at altitude like it does at sea level. Okay. So sometimes it's just you need to get down to altitude and within three days you're as right as rain. Up here, could be three weeks. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Well, you have definitely given us something to think about. What else would you like to share, Nigel? Can you think of anything that... Uh, I, I always say, and because the world is surrounded by lots of people telling you you can do everything, go everywhere, perform everything, and, and, and you know, you, you will be wonderful. And that's lovely. But we're not all performers of every trade or every sport. And I always say, whatever you do in your life, be the best person you can be. So I try to be the best Nigel I can be whether it comes to my family, my friends, my sports, my pastimes, my business, my speaking. You know, I'm never going to be the best golfer in the world. I'm never going to be a Formula One mate, uh, racing driver, but I can be the best me. And if we can all be the best that we are with ourselves, wouldn't the world be a lovely place? Well, that's it in a nutshell, isn't it? You, you, you nailed it right there. If we all could just strive to be the best we could possibly be, Think of what it would be like to live around other people doing the same thing. Yeah. Wouldn't right. it be lovely? Yes. Do you have any more books in you? Well, it's not quite a book at the moment. Without, because I've been writing all these years, diaries, I still write letters. I have my grandmother's Victorian writing desk and I still write letters to friends, uh, handwritten in, in real ink. It's one of my things. Wow. And I was talking with some people last year who said, do you ever write letters to, to ladies? I said, yes, I do write love letters. I still do that. Yes, it's one of my things. And um, would you like to be involved in a project writing love letters to mountains? Oh, really? Really. Wow. And I thought, where did that come from? But what a wonderful idea. So. I have been writing love letters to mountains. Individual mountains with names or mountains generic? No, individual peaks, and I've climbed every one of them. How many peaks have you climbed in total? Oh, good grief, now you're asking me. <laughs> I mean, I count them on two hands, but that's a bit difficult now. Um, <laughs> over 30 major peaks. Wow. I've only written to some of them because of... When I was climbing them, something happened to me or a friend or the weather or how I felt. I'm, I'm quite emotional on a mountain, so it's very personal. So I picked a number of peaks. I've written about 14 letters to them, to individual peaks about what was going on and how I felt and the good and bad side and everything else. In fact, I only finished them this week, literally. And... We're seeing where that goes. I have no idea where this is going to go, but hey, it's already been a lovely, fun ride. That's right. Let's see yeah. where this goes from here. Well, you're definitely going to put it into book form, I hope. You don't I'm hoping to, and, and I work at a mountain film festival, and there is some interest in making a film about it. Again, we will see. Yes, yes. What an inspiration you are, Nigel. I 
sincerely appreciate you taking the time to share that with us and you certainly have encouraged me. My head is spinning as I'm thinking about uh, just many of the things that you have shared. And also, it's so difficult to believe when I am afraid of heights and I don't climb mountains. <laughs> but what you said can apply to any aspect of our lives. And you nailed it. And I really, really appreciate you talking with us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. So we will say goodbye. And I'm when I... When I uh, launch this live, it will have all your contact information and your books and everything else. So anybody that wants to get in touch with you, it will all be there, and um, we'll see where that takes us. And I hope that you keep us informed as well of when your next book comes out. I'd be delighted. Thank you. All right, Nigel. Thank you again. Thank you, Carol. And goodbye. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. Did you know that most people succeed because they are determined to? Quitting was never an option. Carol loves your comments and will respond to each one. So please subscribe and review this podcast. A rating of five stars would be outstanding and appreciated. Remember, if you are still here, there is always hope.